So this is week two of our four-week series uh, of Advent in the, uh, in the book of Isaiah, and we're looking at four passages that point forward beyond themselves to the promise of a son, a king, a kingdom, and coming glory. And so this past week, Ryan preached from Isaiah chapter 7, and in Isaiah 7, where we saw the promise of a coming son, a son that's going to be born to a, a virgin, and the passage in Isaiah 7 was all about faith. How God gives this opportunity to King Ahaz to trust him, but he doesn't. He fails, just like we do so often. But alongside that human failure in the story, we also saw the promise of God, and that promise pointed forward to the coming of Jesus, who would be the fulfillment of the promise of a son, who would be the fulfillment of the promise of a son born to a virgin who would truly be Emmanuel, God with us because he is God incarnate, and Jesus would defeat the things that cause us to fear. And today, we'll see that God's promises in Isaiah were not just limited to the promise of a son, but also to the promise of a king. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and, and meet me in Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, if you don't have a, a Bible and you grab one of those black hardback ones on the way in, uh, consider that Bible our gift to you this morning. Uh, we love the Bible here at Veritas Church. The Veritas, even our name means truth, and we want to be rooted in the truth of God's Word, and that can only be found in this thing I'm holding in front of me right now, this Bible. This is God's revealed Word to us. We want you to see it. So if you're, while you're turning to Isaiah chapter 9, uh, I want to give you the cliff notes of kind of what's happened between 7 to 9. And so uh, Isaiah is a prophet. That just means he's a chosen servant of God to kind of be a, mouth a mouthpiece among the people. And the story continues from 7 to 9 with God telling Isaiah about the defeat of Judah's two great enemies at that time, but also warning about the coming Assyrian invasion. And that event is going to bring almost total devastation for God's people. It's going to be bad, bad news for them. But the good news is that God is going to save a remnant of those who are faithful to him. It won't abandon God, and these people are going to be marked by a few things. They're going to be set apart by the presence of God. They're going to be marked by the fear of God, and, and they're going to be marked by holding on to the truth of God. See, the bad news is that most people, we find out in chapter 8, willingly choose the darkness. They run to other things that are lesser than God to provide answers for them. They turn their face against God and focus on the darkness itself and choose it. And God makes it clear that by choosing darkness, they would never see light. But there would be hope for the ones who waited for God in their places of darkness. On them, a light would shine. God was going to reveal his salvation through the birth of a son who would be their king. So let's pick up the story in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. We'll read through the first seven verses. Isaiah 9, the very word of God to us this morning reads like this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
and every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I love this passage of scripture. Uh, for many of us that grew up in the church, if you grew up around church, you, you've, you've heard this passage of scripture before because it is just absolutely rich. And so there is so much here in this package to unpack. Uh, it would take an entire sermon series to get everything that we could possibly get out of this thing. And yet there would still be more there left on the table to unpack about this passage. So what I want us to invite us into this morning is a meditation on a few themes that this passage invites us to consider. Themes like this, light shining into darkness, real joy, like what is joy actually? It's not just the superficial religious niceties, but deep, real, knee-jerk, I can't help it kind of joy that we see talked about in this passage. And then kind of Meditating on the question of why is it good news that Jesus is king? Like, if you've ever really thought about it, I mean, we here in America living at this time in history, uh, we don't have a really good track record with kings, right? We don't have a king. We're even witnessing right now the absolute crumbling of the, of the aristocracy just across the pond from us, right? Like, my wife is watching television shows about how, like, uh, the king and the queen, all that stuff is just absolutely eroding away. Everything that, in, in, that kind of epitomizes what a king is to us as Westerners, we kind of oppose that. We're all about individual liberty. Why is it good news that Jesus is king? See, I can remember this passage being read at a church that I attended when I was in college. And I remember for the first time, I began to see how amazing the Bible really was. And it was this passage that showed me just how the whole of Scripture is, is, is like uh, everything in it is actually coming together. That Jesus' birth, his kingdom, and his nature wasn't just some invention of creative writers in the New Testament, but that the entire whole Bible is one unified story that had one main focus, and it was Jesus. And that the biblical authors, although wildly different and from different perspectives, were like different uh, instruments in a symphony, all playing the same song and all united by the same conductor, God himself. And what's even more bewildering is that all of these biblical authors writing it at different points in history are in harmony with one another and existing at different points in time. Just let your head kind of spin there for a minute that this passage prophesies the highlights of Jesus in the New Testament Gospels. I mean, we could preach this and have all we need to know about Jesus. Jesus, he comes as the light in the world, light shining into the darkness of sin and brokenness that we have brought into the world. Jesus comes to us as a son born for us. 
Like in the incarnation, Jesus becomes like us by taking on real human skin. He knows what it's like to live as one of us because he's become one of us. Jesus also comes as the son given for us. He's not just come like us, but he's given for us. That all the culmination of all the Old Testament and, and all of those sacrifices given to just pacify God's wrath against sin, God in the flesh comes for us and dies on a cross as the sacrificial lamb that was slain to take away the sin of the world he was given for us. And this joy of salvation that we see in this short passage, that real faith in Jesus that it would be revealed in the New Testament would be one of the wildest expressions of joy imaginable. Remember the last time you you met someone who was a new follower of Jesus that just came to faith in Jesus? I don't know about you, but the people that I know in my life, those are some of the happiest people I know in the world, right? Like nothing else could, could, could dissuade their joy. They're absolutely bubbling over with happiness and like hope for the things around them because they found real hope in Jesus. But not only that, Jesus would multiply the nation, we are told that all the other nations of the earth would be grafted into this new Israel that would be established in his kingdom that would have no end. And so if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you have not placed your hope in this Jesus, this is the offer on the table. Repent and believe in the good news of Jesus and in your places of darkness, Jesus will bring light. Because this king, he comes and he has a name. Yes, it's a complicated name, but it's wonderful counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he would be all of these at the same time. This is a picture of the Trinity on full display. The manifold wisdom of God revealed to us as finite creation. And yes, if now if that, all of that isn't baking your noodle a little bit right now, let's get back to these biblical authors. These biblical authors aren't just orchestra guys. These guys can play jazz. Because often the writings in the Bible are just riffs on other passages of Scripture within the same Bible. Like an idea in music called a riff. You guys know what a riff is? I'm a musician, so this comes easy for me, right? So let's just take it all the way back to elementary school. Uh, Da, 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 da. There it is, right? The entire genesis of that song is based off that one little riff. You could play the rest of the deal, or da, 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 da. And I know where everybody's brain just went like, nah, 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 you know, like the whole complicated thing, right? But even just two notes could do it, right? The song, uh, I'm not going to tell you what it is. Da-na. Da-na, 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 da-na. Just two notes, right? The whole soundtrack of the Jaws theme, right? That riff of an idea is what everything is based on. So let's take this riff that, that Isaiah takes at the beginning of this kind of prophetic uh, prophecy here that's really poetic. In verse 2, he kind of comes out with the all-time greatest iconic written imagery of all time. The riff of darkness and light. This takes us all the way back to the, to the very beginning of the story of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. Where God says, as his first act of creation, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from darkness. See, from the very beginning, all things in the Bible were told a few things about light and darkness. One, that God created the light. God calls the light good, and he separates the light from darkness. 
So from that, we're supposed to glean some things theologically, which is a big word for what we're supposed to know about God, right? So theologically, if there is light, if there is goodness in the world, it comes from God. He creates all that is good, all that is light. Also, it's God who gets to determine what is good and what is not. It's God who gets to separate the light from the darkness, that they are distinct. and He gets to say what's light and what's not. So many of you may be thinking, like, why are we going here? Why are we riffing on this idea? Why are we going all the way back to the beginning of everything? I think this is important because at this point in time, it's no different than any other point in time. We may look at 2022, going into 2023, world around us, and say, man, everything is just crazy. But here's what's true about humans. We want to define what is good and what is bad for ourselves. We want to define what is light, what is darkness for ourselves. We want to be our own God. See, we want to be our own Savior even. And I think this is why it's hard for us to experience real joy. I think that's what it's about. Most importantly in this passage, I think we want to be, if we're honest, our own king. See, I think most of us struggle when we actually come to terms with the fact that the only way Isaiah, is actually, Isaiah 9 is actually good news for us this morning is if we are the people that are sitting in darkness, the people who walked in darkness, the people who dwell in a land even of deep darkness. Because the truth is, although Christ has come, we can set our faith in the goodness of who Jesus is, we are not yet living in the fullness of new creation. We are not in the end game of all things. We find ourselves waiting in seasons of darkness more than we care to admit. It's what we do in those places of darkness that show what our hope actually is in. Is it in Jesus as our good king, or is it in ourselves and what we think we can do for ourselves? See, I think that if we don't rightly see ourselves as the people who are sitting and wait for God, we will miss the joy that comes at his appearing. And we'll have little hope of seeing him as king, as our greatest good. So think with me here for a minute. Think with me of anything in your life that you've really enjoyed or appreciated that you didn't have to wait for. Most everything in your life that you've appreciated or really found deep enjoyment, or real expressions of joy in something, it's something that you had to wait for. It was not immediate. It was not instant gratification. Whether it was finishing school or getting a promotion, maybe finally landing that job that you wanted, maybe it's a, a, a dream vacation you want to go on, maybe it was getting married or having a child, or maybe it was just a Christmas present. Maybe we just take this thing all the way back. I mean, we're, it's Christmas season right now. We talked about this anyways, right? Maybe it was waiting for a Christmas present when you were a kid. And you remember that, like, that one thing? If you've watched like, the, the movie The Santa Claus, there's like this whole theme in the movie about I didn't get that one gift that I wanted, and that's what uh, told me that there wasn't this thing called Santa Claus, which we all know is wrong. He exists. Which we find out in the movie, right? A little weenie whistle falls from the sky, whatever. She gets her little game or whatever. Maybe it was the waiting for that present. That, that, that joy of expression, when you saw that thing under the tree when you were a kid, that pure, 
unmitigated joy that you see when a kid opens up and rips into a present or whatever. Like, man, I want to have joy like that. I want to have joy like the waiting for, for something that we've got to put off and put off and put off and waiting for something that's going to happen in the future. See, we have to wait for all these things, and in our waiting, most of the time we despise it. We hate it. We chalk it up as just wasted time. See, we want the joy of whatever it is that we lack right now. But we must see that it is in the waiting that it prepares us for actual joy. So, so why do we want to skip the waiting? It's in part that we know that along with the waiting is a feeling of helplessness. Because you can't bring that thing about yourself or even pain. See, the truth about these promises of God to send a son who would be the long-awaited king is that it not only involves these seasons of waiting, like God's people would be in waiting after these prophecies of Isaiah for hundreds of years before Christ would arrive. But in those years, you know what's happening? This growing, this anticipation. Or there's a sense of abandonment of, well, God really didn't mean that. God really didn't make that promise, so I'm just going to kind of ride life out on my own. But the other option is this. Something really is growing. Something real is happening in that. And you know what it's a lot like? It's a lot like pregnancy. Think about this. The promises of God can't be fulfilled in this passage without literal pregnancy. But this waiting that we experience as followers of Jesus is like actual pregnancy as well. See, the, the women in the room will get this right off the bat. But if you ask any mother that has been pregnant in the room, the promise of a child is amazing, but it comes with a cost. See, physical pregnancy, it comes with the discomfort of things like morning sickness. Physical pregnancy uh, and having a child means that you will bear the physical marks of stretching and the uncomfortable growth on your body, most likely for the rest of your life. Not to mention the risk, especially at that time period, thousands of years ago, that the birth of the child and having a baby means that you could risk dying in that act in order for that new birth to actually come about. Think with me, if you will, about Mary, the mother of Jesus, after receiving the words of Gabriel about this miracle child that's going to come and be her very savior. Think about the moment after that when the angel goes away. And Mary has to sit with her own words where she just said to Gabriel, let it be to me according to your word. And the next morning she wakes up and things feel different. Her body begins to change. She begins to have morning sickness. Her, her physical body begins to grow because of the baby inside of her. We're only told that her relative Elizabeth celebrated her miraculous birth. Think of the sideways glances and speculations of those in her community with their suspicions. Even Joseph had resolved to divorce her quietly before he gets a visit from an angel of his own. Mary had a moment of waiting in darkness, of waiting in hope of what God had promised. But in that moment of waiting, there's this pendulum that you swing in in those moments of Man, I really want to hold and cling on to this promise that God has actually told me in this. But then there's this inner sense of doubt of like, well, what if? What if things do go sideways? What if things do go bad? 
See, Mary had to wait in her own season of darkness, hoping in God. I also don't miss this. In this picture of the incarnation of Jesus, the baffling truth that Jesus himself underwent a season of waiting in darkness in his humanity, gestating for nine months in the womb of his mother. What a wonder that our God, who is self-existent outside of all time, knows what it means to sit and wait in darkness. See, it is only those who are waiting in the darkness, hoping in God, hoping in God in that place of darkness, that God shines his light of salvation on. See, to be clear, this is very distinct from uh, the, the, the darkness of chapter 8, of those people that chose darkness, of their own sin, to look to themselves or look to lesser things for their own salvation. Chapter 8, verse 17 says this, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. The writer is saying, I know it's God who's hiding his own face from me right now in this moment, but I'm still going to wait in him because he alone is my hope. He alone is my salvation. So we who wait in places of darkness acknowledge that our greatest good is found in God's own face shining upon us, still hoping for him to come. Now let's move on to consider the joy that this passage invites us to consider. The two expressions of joy that we're given in this passage are two expressions of real joy that naturally split, spill out after a season of hardship, waiting, and struggle. The two examples that we're given in this passage is uh, joy in harvest and spoils in victory. Let's take the, the first example of joys in harvest. Um, how many of you grew up in like an agrarian community where you saw like harvest actually happen? Like you saw like cotton pickers go out there and get the stuff and you know, you saw grain uh, be picked and all that stuff. Well, maybe I'm just a minority here in the room, but I'm just showing my full redneck today. Like, that was me. You know, like, I was, I helped on the tractors, and I, like, packed cotton with my grandpa and, like, the cotton trailers and stuff. I get this. But for us, we need to have a category for it. So think like this. Think about getting the big bonus on payday. Like, getting a, the Christmas bonus when it hits the bank account. I mean, this isn't a subscription to the Jelly of the Month Club here, okay? This is like full on, you're getting a, a, a bonus and you're celebrating in that. This is the kind of joy that people can only, who's, who've spent many days waiting on that harvest to may or may not come, seeing it actually revealed in their own life. See, the second example is the joy of the spoils of victory. I, I don't know about you, but I haven't conquered any nations recently, okay? And so I don't know what it's like to enjoy the spoils of victory to that degree, right? Even ethically, can I enjoy those spoils like that? I don't even know. So, but what the example is not, is not really interested in that. It's, it's saying that, like, think of, like, Super Bowl champions after the game, like celebrating the victory. They're not motivated in that moment by medals of honor, and they're not so interested in what, who, gets the, uh, who gets what at, at the end of the day. They're just excited that they've won the victory. They get to share in all of this together. These people are full of joy. That comes from a place that can only come from a place of freedom from oppression now. That the reality is that what was yesterday is no more today. There is victory over your enemies here. See, Many of us don't know these specific joys, but we do know seasons of waiting and struggle. 
Like times where you are just hoping that things turn out all right, but not really knowing until that time actually arrives. Like, man, am I going to make the cut for the team? Are are the numbers going to come back favorable for me at the doctor's office? Is she going to say yes? Or is my anxiety ever going to go away? We get this. It's in the places of waiting in the darkness with hope in God that we are prepared for the real joy when it comes. This joy is, a, is real when the moment comes because we didn't numb ourselves with trite phrases and helpless uh, self-help jargon. We let ourselves experience the pain of loss and hardship, and we bring it to God. We hope in God. We come before Him. In those moments, it makes us pray for the coming dawn. Makes us pray for the light to shine. And when the light breaks upon us, we are fully able to celebrate and rejoice like we should. So, church, how's your joy right now? What's your joy like? What's that joy meter looking like for you? Because to be honest, mine fluctuates a lot. You know why it fluctuates? Here's what I think I think it's our joy fluctuates with it being a direct indicator of our ability to celebrate what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. It's a direct indicator of that. So when the light of Jesus shows up in your life, it shows what you are actually hoping in. Because the light of Christ is going to shine. But who are you going to be? Are you you finding your joy in Jesus and his salvation that he's brought in your life? Or in that moment, are you just kind of blase about it because you think you really did it yourself anyways. You really earned that thing. And so, well, it's not really such a big deal about what Jesus has done for you. See, this passage, the light and joy hinges on whether or not it's good news for us that Jesus is king. So again, if you you don't know what Jesus has done for you, or you need a refresher course on that to hear it again, hear it again from the words of Isaiah 4. Look again at verse 4 in this passage. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his oppressor, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This means that Jesus has not only delivered us, like the oppressed ones who sat in darkness from bondage through our slavery, he has executed wrath upon those who would oppress us. Verse 4 says that he has defeated our enemies. He has broken the rod of the oppressor, which means he's utterly defeated our enemies to the point of taking their means of oppression and breaking those as well. The rod is broken. Sin is defeated. Satan is defeated. Death is defeated through the work of Jesus. This is what our king has done for us. And it's been utterly done without our involvement, without our help. Jesus alone has won this victory that we get to share in the spoils over now. So what this means is these things no longer hold power over us. Look at the description of Jesus as king at verse 6 again. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Who's in charge Jesus is, King Jesus is, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
The rest of this passage ends with describing the global governance of King Jesus over all the nations, and that the reign of this King Jesus would be eternal. It would have no end. But again, these names were given to this king, and I think they really hold the answer to the question, why is it good news that Jesus is king? So for the rest of our time, we're going to spend looking at these names and letting ourselves ask the question, meditate on the question, why is it good news that Jesus is king? That we, do we really know God as wonderful counselor? Do we know him as mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace? So let's start simply. Do you know God as your wonderful counselor? Do you? Or are you the one that you look to for counsel? Is it self-help? Is it books? Is it just other people's opinions that you're going to? Are you going to God himself? See, it's good news that this king needs no counselor, that God himself is the ultimate counselor, that all kings, ancient and modern, are kind of pictured in this court of having all of these people around them. Last time you watched a movie or read anything in the Old Testament, they're always going to their, their wise men, their counselors, and asking for all this advice before they make a final say on something. But this king, he needs none of that. All wisdom dwells in him because this king is wisdom himself. God, being our wonderful counselor, helps us in many ways because it addresses our absolute need for guidance in our life for direction, for comfort, for emotional strength, because this wonderful counselor can always be trusted. And because God has revealed himself through his word, the Bible, the Bible itself can be trusted. You can know God rightly through his word. Maybe as a short challenge this week in knowing God as your wonderful counselor. It's just getting alone. I'm saying like two minutes to yourself, Again, I'm a parent in the room. I know two minutes is like realistic. Don't spend two hours because you probably had to like put on uh, Netflix for your kids for two hours if you're a parent in the room. But just take two minutes. Maybe you're just sitting in your car on the transition from driving from, uh, from work back to home. Just set your car for two minutes. Address God as your wonderful counselor. Ask him for guidance. Ask him for strength. Ask him for comfort. He can be trusted. Two, do you know this God, this King Jesus, as your mighty God? Like really, do you believe that God is powerful enough to address the areas of weakness in your life? What's the thing that you feel like is most hopeless in the world? God is powerful enough to redeem it. How could he not be? If he could not, he would not be God. He is mighty God. Maybe, though, it's an area of doubt that you feel like you can't overcome. Hear me, church. God can overcome your, your, your outworkings of doubt in your life. They will come. They will come and go. But God is always more powerful than the doubt that's in your life. Maybe it's hard for you to believe that God is mightier than even the powers of darkness. Because it seems like things are just so bad out there, that people are getting so crazy, and how could God ever stop all the wrongs around us? How could he ever make things all perfectly new? No, church, that he can. The good news is that God is mighty because he doesn't lose battles, that when we are weak, 
he's strong. Where we are fragile, he can never be broken. And when we are faithless, he is faithful. He's strong, he's courageous, and he'll never fail. Even that word mighty and mighty God is the word for hero. It's the, word, the one who rescues the village. It's the one who, who, who rises up in power that is going to do all things well. This God can be trusted with our deepest flaws and greatest weaknesses because our greatest strength is not found in pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Our greatest strength is found in learning to be more dependent on him. Third, do you know God as your eternal father? And I know this could, this could come with some baggage for many of us. Um, some of you have had um, poor experiences with your biological and earthly fathers. Um, there were more put-downs thrown at you than encouragements. Um, there was very little uh, ways in which you felt built up and a lot of ways you feel, felt torn down. But it really is good news that God is your eternal, everlasting Father, that Jesus invites even us to pray to God as Father as we come to him in prayer because he's the perfect Father that never lets us down. Because God is spirit, he can never leave or forsake us. He is present by the power of his Holy Spirit for all of us who believe that there's never a moment he's not for us. He's always for us. He's never against us. And you never have to worry about being totally isolated or lonely because he's always there. Because in there, in the, in the darkness, in the places of our insecurity, God eternal is there with us with a love that has no beginning and it has no end. God's love for us is eternal because he loves us from everlasting to everlasting because he is eternal. And finally, do you know this God as your Prince of Peace? Look, we have more exposure um, to the media at this point in history than any other time in human history. And what the media tends to do is feed the, the human um, inclination for, for doubt, for worry, for anxiety, for, for strife, for turmoil and stress, sometimes pitting us against one another on social media. Don't do that. But as Christians, unlike the rest of the world, we have a hope that doesn't rest in our ability to fix everything. Because it's not up to us to fix everything. We have a hope that doesn't rest in our ability uh, to be outraged at the right thing at the right time, to feel better about ourselves. Our hope is in the Prince of Peace that has, that is, and will continue to bring peace into this world as a testament of his own glory. I was listening to Tim Keller this week. Uh, he's a pastor and uh, just a mentor to mentor, incredible writer. Read any of his books, they're great. He was saying that right now, around the world right now, there are millions of people in Africa, in Asia, in underground churches, both public and private, that are they're gathering in homes. And they're, they're gathering in homes in order to be able to, uh, to answer the question, well, how do I overcome like the normal things in life? How do I kind of learn to forgive others? How do I deal with the realities of death? Because those are the basic questions that, that humanity's been facing since the very beginning. How do we just deal with the complexities of life? Uh, how do we deal with the reality of death? And in the middle, how do we forgive so that we're not constantly ridden and like controlled by our need to find vengeance for ourselves? And you know what they're not doing? They're not grabbing the, the, the top book off, off of Oprah's uh, self-help list. They're not gathering to discuss the teachings of Plato. They're not gathering even uh, to uh, encourage, just encourage one another. You can do it. Just try harder. 
They're coming to study the teachings of Jesus. They're coming to meet the person of Christ. As they gather together in these small communities that are are, are multiplying across the globe, as we see in our culture in the West, this huge decline in people walking away from Jesus or losing, losing their faith in Jesus, whatever that means, whatever that is, people are still coming to meet the person and work of Jesus because I believe they see themselves as without hope in the world except for Jesus as their true king. They actually believe that they can't do enough, try hard enough to actually deal with those big questions that we've always been facing for all of humanity. These people have found real hope. And in these people, the light of the gospel has shone. And the light of the gospel has produced a joy in them that they cannot contain. So while we in the West, and we as followers of Jesus are, you know, we're, we're downloading the next thing, we're consuming the next media, we're trying to fix our, our own lives again and again and again, while also feeling numb, distant from one another, and kind of hating those around us, these other folks are coming to faith in Jesus and experiencing real joy because they really need Jesus to be their king. They have no other hope. So my charge to myself this morning, my charge to you this morning is, do you see Jesus as your king? Is that good news for you this morning? Is it good news that he's your wonderful counselor? Is it good news that he is your eternal, everlasting father? Is it good news that he's mighty God? Is it good news that he is the prince of peace? Because if he's not, you're not going to have joy. The light of the gospel shining on your life will just produce again another humdrum response to what feels like the same old thing. The answer is, we must see ourselves as the people without hope in the world, like Paul would say, unless the foolishness of the gospel is true. And let me tell you, King Jesus can be trusted. This good news is the good news that has been changing the world for the past 2,000 years. And this is the offer on the table for every single one of us. Do you want joy? Like you just won the Super Bowl. Do you want joy like that check just hit the bank account that was going to clear? If it didn't, you 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 were going to be in the hole because you bought the swimming pool, right? Like on Christmas vacation. Like all the joy of that. Do you want that? only found in Jesus. John, the gospel writer, no doubt riffing on this passage of Isaiah, writing about Jesus, says this in the beginning of his gospel. We heard a bit of it at the beginning of the gathering. I'm going to read it for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. And in him was life, The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the season of Advent, God invites us to make peace with the fact that we are waiting and sitting in darkness, no matter what that looks like in our own life. Advent confronts our notion that to be happy, we must get what we want with a sense of immediacy. In fact, according to the gospel story, God's plan always involves this waiting. This passage in Isaiah invites us to consider why we might be more like the people who did not receive him than we ever dared think, but also that we have the hope that we are offered that to the humble ourselves and believe in his name and become children of God. See, maybe this Advent, you need to consider that the, the darkness around you, it feels like a tomb that's surrounding you, that's bringing you death. Instead of being a tomb, it's more like a womb. That God is making in you this mo- in this moment, preparing you in this moment of suffering and pain and loss for the joy that is to come in your life at God's appearing because God always follows through with his promises. Let's pray. God, I pray that these thoughts on Isaiah 9 would help us see you, Jesus, as king, as a king that's truly worthy of our worship and one that's revealed himself as our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Father, I pray um, that for those of us that feel discouraged in our places of of darkness and waiting, um, God, may the light come in due time. God, may they hope um, not just in uh, the lifting of their circumstances, but God, for the revealing of your face to them, the revealing of your light. And God, I pray that the, the gospel would be all the sweeter, um, both in the places of their waiting, but also uh, in, in the places when you do shine your light upon them. God, I pray um, that for the continuance of this season of Advent for us, uh, we would hope in you and we'd hope in you alone. Um, God, may you um, make much of yourself in us as we consider the ways that we, um, we feel uh, that we are um, sitting and waiting in darkness. May we be um, more confident now than ever that you, God, want to meet us there, um, shape us into many women uh, that are followers of Jesus, hoping in you alone, um, and that we will be um, trans form from one degree of glory to another until the day we meet your face. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.